Welcome to Opto Sessions, where we interview the brightest minds from the stock market, uncovering their secrets to success. If you're looking for ideas, tips and techniques from the world's best, you're in the right place. Hello, I'm Ed Gotham, and this is another episode of Opto Sessions. Today, I welcome Meb Faber, co-founder and the chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Meb is the fund manager for all 11 ETFs available at Cambria, which include the Global Momentum ETF and Global Value ETF, among others. We talk about market valuations, bubbles, and why you need to have a global asset allocation. Also, we discuss a couple of Cambria's funds, the Shareholder Yield Fund and the Tail Risk Fund, both of which are really relevant to the current market today uh, in a lot of detail. All this and more. Enjoy. Hi, Meb. Great to finally have you on the show. How are you doing? Great to be here. How's everything going for you? You know, I, uh, I'm based in Los Angeles. And so when things started to go a little bit sideways this summer, we decided to go pack up and see my family in the mountains of Colorado and decided not to fly. So then it turned into a road trip. And then that road trip turned into two months. So eight states, I uh, was a little nervous because we were dragging a three-year-old along and wasn't quite sure how that was going to work out. And it turned out it worked out great. So um, it's good to be home and back in my own bed, but uh, had a wonderful time um, social distancing, which is pretty easy to do in places like Idaho and Montana. Yeah, but-, uh, but otherwise, glad to be back at the beach too. Yeah, cool. And obviously, it's been a pretty interesting time in the stock market at the moment as well. This year's uh, been pretty eventful. So I actually wanted to start just by uh, asking you about bubbles, in particular, with, uh, talking about the stock market at the moment. Are we in one now? And um, also, maybe discuss like how, how to pretend, like identifiers of how to spot them as well. Yeah. Um, commentators love to talk about bubbles, right? You know, I, I think the most engaging content for particularly television, hey, podcast too, is to have really extreme views held with conviction that are also contrarian. Uh, So people love to talk about bubbles all day long. You know, my sort of common sense definition is they have to be rare uh, and they have to be such that, I mean, I think that Schiller actually has a pretty great uh, description. It talks about where there's really no possible way you could justify a positive return on the investment in the future. Um, And so, you know, it also, there has to be a great narrative and everyone's getting caught up in it. People who traditionally don't invest are getting sucked into the speculative frenzy, all those good things. So for me, my favorite was the late nineties bubble because that was, that was the one that I really um, cut my teeth on. I was in high school and college and got to see the internet dot com boom firsthand up and down um but the nice thing about bubbles particularly with most capital markets uh like stocks is you can certainly use fundamentals as a waypoint or an anchor and a good example we love to talk about valuations with the u.s stock market uh my favorite metric is the 10-year price earnings ratio again going back to schiller who coined the term CAPE ratio, Uh, but really it it goes back a decade, uh, excuse me, a century before Schiller, back to the time of Ben Graham, 
who talked about averaging out valuations over the course of five to seven years. Schiller took the extension to 10 years and also applied it to the entire stock market. You know, and he found the average valuation historically is around 17. When you have times of low inflation, uh, it can be higher, but, but not measurably crazy so to the low 20s, which is actually what the average has been since about 1980. But, uh, you know, it tends to be extreme at times. So it's been as low as five and it's been as high as 45 in the United States. And for comparison, you know, we were the first to do this, but plenty of people have done it since. Um, we went and created the 10-year price earnings ratio for every country in the world. You know, and some countries don't have as much history as the U.S., which you can take back over 120 years, but some like the U.K. do. And you find pretty similar uh, attributes where the average tends to be around 17. You know, they tend to, to bottom out in the low single digits. Now, um, you've certainly seen what I would classify as bubbles, which would be probably a PE ratio over 40, which traditionally has had negative future returns. You've seen other markets hit 40, hit 60. And the biggest we've ever seen was Japan in the 80s, which hit, uh, I believe, 95. And so, Wow. There's really no way you could uh, project future positive returns from those starting points. Uh, and so to me, that's a real bubble. Where is the U.S. right now? It's low 30s. Now, using valuation as a tool is a blunt one, of course. You shouldn't be going to two decimal points on your projections, but um, you can really use any valuation metric. So any valuation metric in the U.S. will say U.S. stocks are expensive, some are at all-time highs, some are 90th decile, some are 80th decile, but, but they all say one thing, which is stocks are expensive. You know, again, I don't think it's bubble yet. It doesn't have to get to bubble and certainly could go even more than a bubble. But, um, but we would say that future returns, and, and Jack Bogle said the same thing before he passed, uh, should be muted for the next five to 10 years, uh, which is roughly we would, we would guess to be low single digits. Okay. So I suppose that the next question is like, how do how do you approach an environment like that? If you say in stocks in particular, what's the right way to approach it when when potentially valuations are high, but doesn't mean that they're not going to go higher? I'd say my approach is the same approach to any market, which is uh, carefully. Um, you know, one of the challenges people like to think about stock markets in terms of just one market. So they think about the US market as if that's one sort of holistic thing. And, and within that market, you know, there's very varying composition by size. So a $100 million company is going to be different than $100 billion or now Apple's $2 trillion. You also have sectors. Uh, tech is going to behave differently than utilities and, and all the things in between. Uh, you have different styles like value and growth. And all these behave at different times in different regimes in different ways. For example, this year uh, and for the past number of years, you've had large caps, uh, market cap weighted, stomping most other styles, including value, but also small cap. And, and certainly the combination of the two, if you look at small cap value at one point this year, it was down 50%. Yeah thinking back to the earlier part of this year. Now that created a very large spread between small cap value and large cap market cap weighting, which is the opportunity too. Um, so you also have to look within markets. You know, in the late 90s, you had a scenario where 
the internet, the tech, the dot-coms, the telecoms, the market cap weightings were all bubble valuations, but lots of the stock market was totally reasonable to downright cheap. Small caps, uh, real estate, high dividend paying stocks basically didn't even have a bear market from 2000 to 2003, whereas the NASDAQ just got destroyed. So you always got to be a little careful about kind of teasing out where there's opportunities. The challenge with today is that the median and the average is all higher. You know, the Q1 helped blow out small caps in value to a bigger spread, but it's sort of been a rising tide of valuations um, within the U.S. market. Now, the good news is certainly uh, the rest of the world is trading at much more reasonable valuations. Um, foreign developed is, is in the low 20s. Emerging markets in the teen, low teens, and the cheapest countries are uh, probably down around 10. So you've had this massive kind of alligator jaws, multiple expansion for the U.S. from the financial crisis to now versus the rest of the world, which hasn't really participated over the past decade. But that's, you know, that's par for the course. These regimes tend to play out over the courses of, of years rather than, excuse me, decades rather than uh, months, quarters and years. Now, we'll dig into the global asset allocation. I know you've done a lot of work on that later on, but I suppose, are we saying potentially other countries might be better opportunities in some ways than US stocks at the moment because of their valuations are low or not? Simple, simple answer is yes. Uh, the challenge is when, you know, um, we tell clients and investors, and they don't like to hear this, but when they ask me about any investment, it could be an asset class like precious metals or bonds or stocks. It could be an active strategy like value or trend following. Um, they ask me when they make an allocation, you know, how long should I give this? Or they'll say, hey, I bought this and I'm going to give it a year. And, and I say that the correct time frame is 10 years. And they usually laugh or smile awkwardly. And I say, no, I'm serious. Uh, I actually used to say 10 years. Now I say 20, in which case they usually kind of walk off and join a different conversation. But uh, that's, that's my belief. And so the challenge with any asset class, I mean, you look at, for example, the most universally held belief amongst investors, and I don't even think it's close, is that stocks outperform bonds. And I actually don't know a single investor anywhere that doesn't believe that. And However, if you were to ask someone how long they would give an investment before they would sell it, if it was underperforming, most answers are two to three years. Well, there was a point in March where U.S. stocks had had the same performance as bonds for 40 years. Not, and this is long-term bonds, not one or two years or five or 10, 44 decades. That's as long as I've been alive. Um, and so the mismatch between expectations and what people are willing to give an investment, I think is really important when you consider saying something like, yes, do I believe foreign stocks are a much better opportunity? I do. Uh, how long will that play out? Well, you'll have to have me back on in 2030. Uh, I think it's probably a reasonable time frame. but even then I would say that might not be long enough. And that's, I think um, most people, they just, they aren't willing to think and, terms of reality. So yes, do I think foreign stocks are much cheaper? I do. I've been saying that the last few years. Um, the challenge for most people, you know, is they uh, do one of two things. They either follow the global market cap weight, which 
um, is about half in the U.S. and a smattering in the rest of the world. And the problem with market cap weight is it traditionally will overweight expensive securities. So for those listening, don't know what market cap weighting is, that, that's the true definition of an index where you invest more in companies that as they get bigger and less than the ones that are smaller. So right now, you know, if you own a U.S. stock phone, you have most, most of your money in Apple, Amazon, Walmart, all those good companies, Tesla now. <laughs> so, but the problem is there's no tether to fundamentals whatsoever. It's simply price of the stock times shares outstanding. It's slightly better than the Dow methodology, which is literally just price of the stock. Apple, after they've gone through a share split, went from something like 12% of the Dow to two, which is quite possibly the most nonsensical investing strategy in the planet. Market cap is up there. The beauty of market cap and the reason that people have done it for the last few decades and the reason why it beats most people is the ability to do it at, at zero to no cost uh, because you don't do anything. Um, there's no rebalancing really. And so market cap weighting, you can, you can offer those funds for about five basis points or 0.05%, um, which is essentially free. So that's the way most people do it. The problem with that, as you can see, out of the 45 countries, the U.S. is what we consider to be the second most expensive country in the world. So you put half your money in the U.S., the same as you would have put most of your money in internet companies in the late 90s, same way as you would have put most of your money in Japan in the late 80s when it traded at a PE of 95. So market cap weighting is pretty suboptimal. Um, I mean, it's good, but it's not ideal. Any other weighting methodology would be better. The second way that people tend to invest is they just put all their money in their own home, home country stock market. So uh, if you're a Brit, you put it all in the UK. Aussies do it. Japanese friends do it. Um, Indians, Brazilians, everyone. The average in the U.S. is the average American puts 80% of his stock investing in the U.S. and 20% foreign. And it's just a massive, massive concentrated overweight in one country. And in 2020, that makes no sense. Maybe in the 1950s, when, when capital markets may not have been as open, uh, it was harder to transact in global shares. But in 2020, that makes no sense. And the problem there is you have a totally uncompensated concentration risk in just one country. And you can ask just about any country in the world over the past 10 years if that's been a smart idea. And for the most part, the answer is probably no, with the exception of the US, which has stomped most other countries. But uh, that's a rarity. Going back to 1900, that's only happened a couple times, the 1990s, 1920s. Um, so having the global diversification Tilting towards valuation, I think, makes a lot of sense. The opportunity right now is much greater in foreign securities with particular nod to emerging markets and the cheapest countries with a nod to value. Uh, that gets you into somewhat scary places for a lot of people, but that's sort of what it takes to, uh, to end up outperforming over time. And um, I'd just like to take it back a bit now and ask, because um, you've had a pretty interesting career, what, what was your sort of path to, to fund management? where you are now? Yeah, you know, I, I graduated as an engineer, biomed focused, had started out as a biotech stock analyst, um, traditional discretionary fundamental security analysis, started gravitating a little more quantitative bent, had worked at a startup commodity trading advisor in San Francisco slash Lake Tahoe. Uh, I like to say that was 10% uh, 
commodity trading research and about 90% being a ski bomb, uh, but, but kept gravitating away from biotech and more and more towards quantitative investing, eventually led to starting Cambria, uh, pre-financial crisis, the last one, not this one, and uh, been at it for over a decade now. Uh, so we, uh, we have 11 funds now, soon to be a few more, mostly uh, a pure systematic rules-based focus, um, but ranging from everything from tail risk to asset allocation to uh, stocks with two fundamental sort of um, pillars being value investing and momentum and trend following as well. And um, what in particular attracted you to the financial markets? What, in- what interests you about it? Uh, well, they're certainly endlessly fascinating, um, you know, in, in all aspects, not just the macro world of uh, bonds and interest rates and currencies and watching regimes fall and get built and empires uh, being built on equities. Also understanding the personal finance side, the ability really of uh, money to compound over years and decades, the ability for anyone to become an owner and get rich uh, and not even have to participate with all the agony and ecstasy of being an entrepreneur. All those things mixed in, uh, the excitement of innovation and optimism of making the world a better place. I love angel investing with startups as well. I've invested in 200 companies. Um, And every day, uh, there's a bit of a barbell between the excitement and optimism about the future with startup investing and often the negative geopolitical news with public markets investing uh, on the other end. And so it's nice to have a little bit of a balance, but you know, it's, it's just sort of endlessly fascinating. Every day uh, is different. We try to study as much history as possible to have a a foundation to learn and base uh, many of the concepts off. But even then, 120 years of modern capital markets, or 50 if you consider floating interest rates, excuse me, floating currencies, that's not that long. And so all the time we see new things that happen like this year, the fastest ever from a all-time high to bear market and vice versa. You know, they're, they're constantly surprising, which, which keeps it interesting too. Yep. How did you, how did you start um, your first fund? When, when did that happen? Because uh, they exist as ETFs, is, is that right? Sure. So we started out with separate accounts and private funds, so hedge funds. Uh, you know, ETFs, while they got their start in the late 90s and in Canada, really didn't start to gain traction until the 2000s. And at the time, we had uh, got started getting the exemption to launch an ETF was still rare. You know, everyone and their mother has the exemption now, and you actually don't even need it with the ETF rule anymore. But back then, it used to cost, we know firms where it cost a million bucks in legal fees and took two years. For us, thankfully, by the time we got it, it only cost a couple hundred grand uh, in about 14 months now it costs nothing. Sadly. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, but we'd started out with, with separate accounts and private hedge funds. My partner had come from a venture capital, corporate finance, legal sort of world. I had come from research. Neither of us had founded an investment advisor and certainly not one that managed public assets. So we bootstrapped it, started it slow. Um, managed other types of private funds like insurance dedicated funds had started writing at the same time with really no intention of doing that uh blogging 
what they called it back then, and uh, realized then that our audience was not just um, in LA or even uh, across the country, but also global. And then people kept requesting a, a way to invest publicly. As you know, uh, there's a lot of screwy challenges with doing private funds, accredited investor rules, huge 60-page due diligence docs. It's just a, a pain. And so we had been approached to do uh, a public fund as a sub-advisor. We did that. Very quickly realized we had just too many ideas. We should be running it on our own. So got our own exemption, started launching funds, I believe in 2013. And at this point of transition almost entirely to a fund manager, uh, we still have a direct digital offering for investors uh, that, that want a, a direct and uh, retail individual investor offering partner with Betterment. Uh, but most most of the focus at this point is is on uh, ETFs, and uh, we'll probably settle in the sort of mid-teens range um, on the on the number of offerings. And we tend to look pretty different. You know, there's dozens of these ETF managers and even more legacy fund mutual fund managers. Um, ours tend to be a bit of a, a odd child compared to uh, the rest of the traditional funds from Vanguard and State Street and others. No, they look really interesting. And I've actually, I've got a few questions about the specific strategies, uh, in particular ones that are relevant to the time now, which I've, I've read about. If we could take it back to the sort of market now for a little bit. So a lot of the technical analysts we've had on the show, uh, people such as, I don't know if you know them, JC, Peretz, et cetera. Charts are saying for a lot of things that we're entering even a new bull market rather than what a lot of people, you know, it's one of their most hated sort of uh, bull markets, you could say at, at the moment. Um, because people think you know it was due a reversion because of the problems of coronavirus, et cetera. What, what's your sort of viewpoint on it? Because I know yours, you'll have a, a different outlook on, on that. Um, you know, there, there's a million different approaches and ways to invest in markets. Buy and hold is certainly a totally acceptable one. There's other ways like uh, trend following, which is uh, an investment methodology that is active and People tend to think in binary terms of whether you're invested in a market or not based on some long-term definition of trend. And the long-term definition doesn't really matter. Something like 200-day uh, moving average or 12-month highs, those are both pretty similar in concept. We actually just published a paper on the concept of all-time highs, which most people would assume to be a terrible time to invest, but in act actuality is a, is a great time to invest. So if you look at the trend, uh, universally in U.S. stocks, it's up, which is obviously crazy this year. Uh, best way to have approached 2020 is just take a six-month nap uh, because then nothing would have changed in the interim uh, in financial markets, really, uh, with U.S. stocks. With other asset classes, absolutely. Gold, precious metals have been going crazy. Um, bonds are having a great year. Uh, U.S. stocks and real estate and foreign have all somewhat round-tripped down and back up. And then there's other areas that have, have done much worse. But, you know, if you put the U.S. stock market into four quadrants and the two-by-two two matrix being, are they cheap? Are they expensive? Are they in an uptrend? Are they in a downtrend? The best possible quadrant historically is a cheap uptrend, which makes sense. And the worst is a expensive downtrend. The second best, however, is an expensive uptrend, which is where we are now. 
And that's the thing with markets and bubbles and uptrends and expensive markets. Like you mentioned, they can certainly get more expensive. The way that it went from a 30 PE to 45 in the 90s was the market went up 50%. Think about that from today. Imagine the market going up 50%. Everyone would lose their mind, of course, but that's entirely possible. It's not probable. I would not bet on it. Um, and if you e want to make your mind explode even more, uh, to get to where Japan was, it would need to triple. <laughs> so um, how many people were calling for that to happen? Well, of course, none. On the flip side, you have to be able to hold in your head the possibility that markets could decline 80%. It's happened in the past. And so we actually wrote about this this year in March, uh, pretty near the bottom. And it was a four-part series. It was called the Get Rich Portfolio, the Stay Rich Portfolio, Investing in a Time of Corona, which is what we'll talk about, and then how I invest my own money. And in the Investing in a Time of Corona post, I said, look, the world feels like it's falling apart. However, as an investor, you have to be able to at least consider the possibilities. And I outlined a potential bear case, which was probably more popular at the time. Coronavirus would wreck havoc everywhere, which it has um, across economies. Governments respond poorly. Fiscal monetary policy wouldn't work. The virus comes back in the fall. Yada, yada. People are depressed. Stock markets go down 80% or 50%, but a lot. Flip side, you know, the virus is contained, uh, people behave, hospitals are not maxed out, monetary fiscal policy works, businesses recover, and markets hit an all-time high by year end. And people are like, that's crazy. There's no way that's possible. Well, here we are. You know, U.S. markets are hitting an all-time high. Um, I wouldn't say it's as rosy as the bull case outline, but markets uh, behaved as if it was. And so the challenge for most investors is how do you square all the possibilities? You know, most people, including institutions I know, they come up with one worldview and then just looking for, look for confirming evidence all day. My gold bug friends, all they want is how does gold get to three, 5,000? Uh, ditto with crypto uh, bulls. You know, dividend stocked investors, they're looking for how do stocks go up. Um, you also have to think about the, and same thing with, with the skies falling um, bears on anything, Tesla, US stock market, bonds, who knows. You have to at least consider the alternate outcome. Um, and that's, I think, uh, a really important. Otherwise, you end up getting surprised and uh, wrong-footed. And a good example would be the people that sold stocks in 2009 and never bought back again. Uh, you know, it happens. It happens a lot. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. A lot of people have been talking about the Fed, the open market operations, um, increasing money supply and impact on the dollar. Are we at risk of of inflation increasing over the next years? How um, what's the likelihood of that happening, and how should people invest if that sort of does happen? Well, I think the first principle is that people should invest considering every possible outcome, and that's rising interest rates falling, ditto for inflation, ditto for growth, ditto for good and bad markets, and so building a 
balanced portfolio that will behave in any of the outcomes, I think is important. Um, you know, how many people 10 years ago would say, you know, I think we're going to be in a world of majority of the sovereign bond markets trading at negative yields. We'll be in a world where in some countries you can get a mortgage with a negative yield. Uh, oil futures will trade at negative uh, spot uh, futures price at some point. These are all somewhat crazy things that people would have had a hard time considering. I mean, I think the consensus five, 10 years ago would be the Fed, inflation, and the reality, the opposites happened. We've had some pretty strong disinflation outright, deflation in places, um, but you have to prepare for both. So on one hand, you know, you have a, a balanced portfolio that should at least survive either scenario people pull their hair out. How could you buy treasuries at 50 basis points? Well, what if they go to zero? What if they go to minus one? You know, that would be a weird world, but it's happened in many other places. What if they go to two, three, 4%? I think both are possible. So putting together all the main ingredients, and there's really three that we tell people that they need to have in a portfolio. Otherwise it tends to be a little suboptimal. It's global stocks, global bonds, and then global real assets. And that includes commodities and assets like real estate or farmland. Um, excluding any one of those, I think uh, the portfolio is weakened and certainly excluding geography of the entire world is foolish too. Um, after you get that though, the exact percentages, I don't think they matter. You know, We did a book called Global Asset Allocation that looked at lots of various asset allocation strategies and found out that um, your actual allocation didn't matter that much as long as you had the main ingredients. And how do you, how do you um, construct such a portfolio? What, what weightings are in real assets as opposed to stocks, et cetera, if you want to be balanced? I don't think it matters. The, um, you know, the, we, did, we featured about a dozen portfolios in the book. And the beauty of 2020 is that you can buy this global portfolio. And by the way, the starting point would be the market cap weighted portfolio, which is roughly half stocks, half bonds of that half US, half foreign. Um, and that's a darn hard portfolio to beat. And the beauty is you can get that for free, essentially, in 2020. And that's awesome. Um, so that creates a pretty high bar uh, to be able to outperform and any other turning the dials on equities, bonds, real assets, um, versus that free portfolio uh, is, is challenging. So that, by the way, that portfolio, I joke, goes back 2,000 years. There's the old uh, Talmud, um, which says, let each, each man uh, put half his, or a third of his money in business, in land, and in reserve. So I, I liken that to stocks, uh, real, real assets, and cash and bonds. And that's a really hard portfolio to beat for almost anyone, um, particularly at zero cost. So to me, that should be uh, the starting point. Now, do I think you can outperform that? I do. Uh, we mentioned tilts towards value or also momentum and trend. I think they'll maybe add one or 2% a year. It's not going to take the portfolio from 10 to 20, but it may take it from 10 to 11 or 12 or, you know, a low interest rate environment from five to 7%, which is meaningful and worth doing over time. The problem for most people 
uh, is those investments end up looking different. Foreigns outperform the U.S. for a decade. Values underperform growth and market cap weighting. Um, anything has outperformed commodities. Uh, so any tilts you've taken away from certain things have looked foolish. Uh, so that would be my starting point. Um, and, and the book that I mentioned is free to download online. The Cambria Investments or Meb Faber. Um, it's an ebook. Hopefully we'll update it this year because uh, I think it goes through maybe 2015. So need, need, need to update it. But conclusions remain the same. Um, a surprising takeaway for many is that the amount you pay for that portfolio combined with the taxes you pay on that portfolio is more important than the actual allocation itself, which most people don't want to hear. They like talking about, man, is gold expensive? What about the Fed? What about interest rates? Where are stocks going? Uh, but in reality, the boring implementation of the portfolio, I think, has a bigger impact than the actual portfolio design. And let me caveat that with how much you just decide to save and invest in the first place is more important than your returns over time. Um, but again, that's the hard part. No one wants to save and invest. We all want to spend the money. Um, so uh, all, the, all the boring, hard parts of investing is, is really what matters more than the, the sexy parts. When you say the weightings don't really matter, I mean, to some degree, it, like if it was 99% stocks, 1% or 0.5% real assets, 0. surely it's, you, do you mean like equal weighting is, what, what, how, how do you mean when you say the weighting doesn't matter? Um, when I say it doesn't matter, I mean, it doesn't, it's not obvious that there's an optimal allocation. There is obviously in, in hindsight, but, but not going forward. I mean, the allocations of the 70s, the best ones, permanent style portfolios, anything with a heavy allocation to gold or commodities or real assets got trounced in the ensuing decades. Um, so having a balance between the two, I, I think if you exclude an entire asset class, it's gonna be definitely suboptimal. So I think the Buffett portfolio is a terrible idea, which is 90% in the S&P 500, 10% in cash or bonds. I think it's a horrible allocation. Now, God bless him, it's been incredible for the past decade. So uh, what do I know? But, uh, but historically speaking, it's a very suboptimal. And the analogy we like to give example in the book that I think is useful is that you know, let's say you go back to 1972 and I say, look, um, you get a pick from any allocation in this book with full understanding of future returns and full um, bias towards understanding how this works out. However, you have to implement it with the average mutual fund fee of today, which is 1.25%. That's, that difference takes the best performing allocation, which is the endowment model of El Arian, which makes sense because it's heavy in stocks stick rate over the past 30 years. And it makes it almost as bad as the worst allocation in the entire book just by overlaying the fees. So the concept of fees creates such a high hurdle for uh, a buy and hold allocation. Now, if you say, well, I don't trust myself and I need a financial advisor. So you got to layer on another 
which is 2.25% total, which by the way, in a lot of countries around the world is not that high of a fee. It is now in the US, but in Canada, Japan, plenty of places where that's not an unusual fee. It takes the performance of the best performing with total look ahead knowledge of what's going to happen. The single best performing strategy in the book out of like dozens of asset allocation strategies and makes it far worse than the worst. So just simply by paying a, a high fee, you render the entire asset allocation decision irrelevant, uh, which I feel like for a lot of people, to me is astounding conclusion for a lot of people um, tend to ignore uh, or, or just kind of poo poo and still go pay one, two, 3%, which, you know, to me is, is ludicrous. Yeah, it makes sense. And um, you said previously something about market sentiment. I just wanted to get your uh, viewpoint on that. You, you've mentioned historically when everyone is looking, uh, everyone is loving the stock market. Future years have had low returns. Uh, would you consider sentiment at this time to be low and therefore um, a prediction of possibly good returns in the coming years? You know, sentiment to me is sort of like a squishy uh, indicator that it's, it's a sort of a useful, useful coincident indicator. I don't know that I would ever put serious money to it. I mean, it, it does mark turning points. My favorite example is the Association of American Association of Individual Investors, which asks, are you bullish, you bearish, you neutral in the stock market? And same thing, how much do you have stocks, bonds, cash? And the single most bullish reading in the entire study for like 50 plus years was in December 1999 at the single most expensive stock market's ever been in history. And what was the most bearish people were, it was in March of 2009. So uh, it's sort of just this crazy, I mean, you couldn't make that up. That's the most nonsensical response you should ever have. It's the exact opposite. And there's other studies and sentiment ones over the past handful of years. There's a good one that goes back to the 60s investors intelligence and Luthold looks at the average sentiment over the course of a year and takes the 10 worst sentiment years and how the stock market do the following year and the 10 best sentiment years and the 10 worst, the following year stock market returns was like 17%. The 10 best highest sentiment where people were super bullish, the average returns were zero. And there's been a couple over the past uh, decade that have, have gotten into the bucket and we have some old posts on the blog about it. Um, it definitely see, seems like there's pockets of um, mania right now. Mania is maybe a little strong. I, mania and crypto a couple years ago would certainly be the right description. But uh, you see the moves in some stocks like, you know, we've been a long-term shareholder in Apple. I think we've held it for like seven years now. But watching it just explode, Tesla, a lot of these names, um, is uh, I think symbolic of a little bit of euphoria, but it doesn't seem like it's totally widespread yet. And what you do see is a pretty clear distinction between what I would call Main Street and Wall Street. Um, the classic argument is that stocks look out into the future and forecast, uh, which is pretty hard to square if you're a discretionary investor right now against the uh, sort of economic data of Main Street with, you know, like the example I gave on Twitter, I said, if you 
went back a year and said, hey, PMI is going to go from high 50s to negative. Interest rates go from two and a half to zero. Unemployment goes from sub five to 15. Oil at one point trades negative on the futures market and gold's up by a third. Where do you think the stock market is? I don't think anyone on the planet would say all time high, you know, and up uh, like 20% in the past year and, and up year to date. So it's, it's a little bit of a head scratcher. Um, and who knows, maybe it resolves by an amazing renaissance of uh, innovation and production and Elon finds uh, free energy on Mars. I don't know. Who knows what it could be? But uh, it's, uh, it's certainly, I think, a, a clear spread between what's going on in the economy and, and what's going on in, in markets currently, at least stock markets, U.S. In particular. And do you, have a, do you have an opinion on value versus growth and um, what, you, what you see as the better play moving forward? You know, I, I, think, um, I think Buffett gets it right when he talks about this as, as two sides of the same coin. People love to bucket the two, uh, but in reality, I think you can incorporate both. I mean, I think you have to use the concept of value not just for picking the cheap stuff, uh, but also as a fundamental anchor for avoiding the really expensive, you know, as, as a sort of sanity, common sense check against buying the stock market when it's at 40 or 60 times earnings or God forbid 90 like Japan. But in reality, if you're a market cap weighted investor, you put most of your money in Japan in the eighties in the biggest equity mobile we've ever seen. And, and most people, uh, follow a similar approach, whether it's active or passive. So, uh, you know, I, I certainly think value is critical. It doesn't really matter most of the time. You know, most markets trade most of the time in sort of reasonable valuation range. It's only really when they get to pretty far extremes that it becomes interesting. Like all the, as my friend John Bollinger said, like all the information, good information is in the tails. So to me, uh, I think you need a value approach, but, but growth is a very obvious component of that. If you go back to the Bogle formula for forecasting, he wouldn't say forecasting, he would say probably coming up with expectations on future stock market returns. There's three variables, starting dividend yield, earnings and dividends growth, and change in valuation. So both are components of what happens in the future. So Obviously, and that applies to the entire stock market, but it also applies to individual securities too. So a higher valuation of 40 PE is justified if you have romping, stomping growth. Uh, it's not if you have terrible growth and vice versa. PE of five sounds great, but if the company is declining, uh, is stagnant, is getting disrupted uh, as a traditional incumbent by some startups, then it's not a good value. So they, they both play a role um, that having been said, traditional value metrics relative to traditional growth metrics seem to be at a pretty widespread today. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we could move on to just discuss, you've got so many interesting funds at Cambria. Um, and I've, a couple in particular um, I wanted to discuss. We haven't really got time to discuss all of them. One was because you've written a lot about shareholder yield funds. I think I've picked a couple that were most relevant to the time now in sort of, you know, asset prices where they are now. Shareholder year funds and tail risk fund. Is it possible to? Okay, two totally different ones. Uh, you know, the shareholder yield concept is such that 
there's hundreds of billions, probably trillions globally that invest based on yield. And it's a time-honored investment strategy where people invest based on dividend yield and equities going back 100 years. But in the modern world, and this confuses a lot of commentators, gurus, journalists, politicians, celebrities, um, thinking about corporate finance in general, and this is finance 101, in the modern world, uh, there's also another tool in the toolkit for distributing cash to shareholders, and that's stock buybacks. If you don't understand buybacks, we don't have enough time today, you can Google a post we did called FAQ on stock buybacks. And there's about 10 or a dozen great reads on the subject because a lot of people just really don't understand them. But at their core, stock buyback, if a stock's trading at intrinsic value, is the exact same thing as a dividend. Uh, ignoring taxes. With taxes, it's actually uh, more efficient. And, and most investors don't understand that or get it wrong. If a stock's trading at a discount to intrinsic value, Warren Buffett said there's no better use for cash than uh, a company to buy back its shares, which Berkshire has been doing the past couple years. Um, so the concept of shareholder yield, looking by great companies that are generating cash and returning that numbers, it makes zero sense, zero logical sense to focus on dividend yield alone. In fact, there's plenty of, of stocks and, um, and companies that use both dividends and buybacks, and you got to use net buybacks to make sure you account for share issuance too uh, as a holistic figure. But also, there's companies that will do uh, maybe have like a 4% dividend yield, but actually issue 5% shares per year. So in reality, they have a negative yield, but people invest in that company because they see the 4% yield. So it's misleading. All that has to be paired with valuation. Last thing you want is an expensive company doing buybacks. So if you combine a screen for uh, companies that are generating lots of cash flow, distributing to shareholders, trading at cheap valuations, what more can you ask for? And that concept shareholder yield applies both domestically as well as foreign and emerging markets. Um, and I think is a, is a just totally sound investing approach uh, for really any, any sort of markets. And then quickly, um, the tail risk. Oh boy, okay. That's, that's the totally opposite. Tail risk, you know, is a concept of, for many investors, particularly in the US, who are worried about a long bull market, a long uh, decade, first decade we've ever had without a recession, although we certainly had one this year, um, as stocks got more expensive, more and more people were interested in hedging the outcomes of a down market. So that could either be a long bear market. We've had a couple in the past 20 years, you know, where you lose half or even the possibility of a depression scenario where you lose 80 plus. And, uh, that would be hard for a lot of people that are investors to endure that having been said, um, you know, we, what's the best way to balance that out? And so we did a paper a few years ago called Worried About the Market, it might be this time for the strategy, where we looked at the worst months and years in the US stock market and bear markets, and how do you hedge that? And the summary was, uh, the first way to hedge US stocks is just not to own as much. So if you have 100% of your money in stocks, you just own less. 
Second way is you buy other assets that potentially diversify foreign stocks, real estate, bonds, commodities. Now, a couple of those you wouldn't expect to really diversify in bad times, namely foreign stocks, real estate, commodities, with the exception of precious metals. And it turns out that's true historically and was true again in 2020. Um, But some do. Bonds do historically. Gold does sometimes, not always. And then you can use active strategies like value tilts, trend following, that both should help. And then and only then, I think you get to this concept of tail risk hedging. Uh, and traditionally, that's done with derivatives like options or futures. But certainly buying puts on the stock market uh, should do, can't say guaranteed in this world, but should do really well when the stock market does poorly. The problem with puts is, is they're an insurance vehicle. So you have to consider the cost in the good times, similar to how you consider the cost of life insurance, health insurance, car insurance, all that good stuff. Uh, you know, if you have a car for 10 years, you never get into a wreck. Well, car insurance was, was a foolish purchase, but you are sure glad you have it if you uh, get into a fender bender. So, um, you know, we launched this fund, ticker symbol tail, and it's, it's played out, you know, as expected. It's done well when uh, markets like 2020, which we didn't predict, of course, um, you know, ha- had sort of really strong moves to the downside. Uh, you know, do, how do people think about incorporating it is the biggest question we get. And we see it a couple different ways. And so the way we do it, by the way, is 90% of the portfolios in, in U.S. government bonds around the 10-year uh, in duration, uh, expiration. And then we buy a ladder of puts on the stock market three months on out to like 16 months. And so some people use it as a satellite holding. Some people use it as just an alt bucket. Some people use it as a bond substitute that will bring down your equity exposure. You know, and some people use it tactically, uh, if the markets are in a downtrend or markets are expensive. But the interesting takeaway for it is, is less of a sort of portfolio optimization idea and more of a uh, behavioral one, which is thinking back to March when, you know, the futures would be limit down or markets would be uh, down 8% overnight, whatever it was, the ability to have something that potentially does really well during those periods, I think is, is invaluable if it helps you get to the finish line and behave Going back to what we talked about earlier, so many people struggle with the big drawdown losses, 09 coronavirus, that having something at least helps them endure, uh, I think is a really positive addition to the portfolio. Um, so that's one that's a little more wonky and niche. Not everyone needs it. Uh, financial advisors, I think, specifically um, would benefit and asset managers from hedging their human capital. Uh, but but all sorts of have um, been interested in that fund. Oh, thanks, man. That's really interesting. Um, no, but yeah, that's, but I've never seen, or I've never had, uh, or looked into an ETF that involves options as part of the strategy. That's, that's pretty interesting that. Um, yeah. yeah, and you gotta be in the sort of the bear market or alts liquid um, category, uh, long short, it's littered with complex products, with products that are confusing, uh, often leveraged, and 
most importantly, really expensive. Yeah. Uh, you know, this, this fund as of the end of last quarter was the single cheapest fund in the entire category. You know, on average, our funds are 30% uh, plus discount to the category average, which I think is important to, to be a reasonable fee. But the, for whatever reason, the liquid alts and bear category tends to attract really expensive funds. Yeah. So that's another, just, just be careful, know what you own before uh, buying uh, some of these products because a lot of them can be extremely volatile um, as well. Cool. And uh, we've got a section we do at the end of every uh, podcast called the quick fire section. It's just six questions. Um, not looking for long answers at all. So it's whatever quickly comes into your head. Um, we just, it's how we finish every podcast. The first one is who's your investing hero and why? I'm terrible at short answers. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I certainly have a lot of fondness, uh, for both parents that, you know, kept me engaged in this concept of investing. They came from two very different mindsets. Uh, you know, mom always came from a sort of coffee can, portfolio idea, you know, which makes sense because she grew up during the sort of bull market of the 80s and 90s, where if you bought and held something, you know, good quality stock brand blue chip, basically everything did well. Uh, you know, her, her father, my grandfather was also an engineer uh, for one of the best performing stocks of all time, tobacco company, RJR Reynolds. So that didn't hurt. Um, my father, and my mom was a school teacher. My father was an engineer too. He came at it from the standpoint of sort of the Peter Lynch, buy what you know. Uh, so was always interested in other technology companies, other ideas. Certainly both of us have had, he passed, uh, all of the behavioral biases, um, which is one of the reasons I'm a quant today. <laughs> so both of us would take too much risk, overconfident, all that good stuff. Um, so I, I uh, you know, appreciated getting to experience the, the concept of investing, capital, entrepreneurship from, from both sides, the good and the bad. You know, I think both parents had, um, you know, faults as we, their approach to markets, but uh, that, that would be, uh, that would be my answer. And if I had some, uh, I told you I'm bad at short answers, by the way, let's, let's move <laughs> on or otherwise it's going to take an hour. Uh, best place you've surfed and skied. I know, you, I know you enjoy that. Surfing. I'm terrible. So, uh, you know, Costa Rica has a soft spot. When I graduated university, I had some friends, then a pickup and drive around there and just get done at every break in Costa Rica, but super cheap, amazing, beautiful people, great food, beautiful country. Uh, I would take the entire Pacific coast of, of Costa Rica. Skiing, I mean, my home mountain is Colorado, Winter Park. Got a lot of scars and sutures. I think the most unknown, although that's changed very quickly in the last few years, uh, skiing destination in the world has been Japan which a lot of people don't know, but gets some of the most consistent and uh, deep snow uh, every year. Sad that won't be going anytime because of coronavirus, but uh, there's a lot of Europe. I haven't skied most of, most of Europe. So that's, uh, that's my short list, Europe and uh, South America. Uh, favorite book? 
I mean, investing, non-investing? Investing is um, Triumph of the Optimists. Uh, that's by a couple Brit professors. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful coffee table book. It's expensive. So uh, maybe buy it used or get one from the library. They actually do a yearly free update uh, online called uh, the Global Investing Returns Yearbook. And all of those are actually worth reading. If you read all those and complete them, it's like a master's in investing. It's probably 10 years worth. I think it's partner with Credit Suisse. Can't remember now. Uh, fantastic book. It gives a history of over 120 years in uh, stocks, bonds, and, uh, and cash markets in foreign exchange. Uh, top tip for newbie investors? Um, I think having a, and it ties in with the last answer, have an appreciation of history is really helpful. Uh, there's a blog post we did, something along the lines of the titles, either the number one investing book or top investing books, but we pulled the audience and in six categories came up with the best book in each category. Uh, so those six books will probably get you a long way to um, a really good start on your investing journey. So having a good background foundation, I think is, is really helpful to uh, behaving uh, in, in, the, in our world. And I'd couple that with being mindful of, of cost too. Um, where or who do you go for market insight, if anyone? You know, uh, this has changed over the years. I think uh, we have a research service called the Idea Farm, which is based on the concept of there's just a, a flood of information out there that we get bombarded with, whether that's news, TV, newspapers, and it's even more today with the internet. So trying to find the signal and the noise there is tough. So for me, it used to be academic papers and blogs. Now in 2020, it's incredible the amount of content that's available on podcasts uh, and, and formats like this. I mean, it's, and it's free. So it's crazy. I think you could get uh, for a lot of students listening that uh, are doing a remote MBA or undergrad this year, man, you could download. Uh, we have a Spotify list where we had summarized the best investing podcasts from 2017 on that uh, you listen to that probably you'll you'll be uh, more valuable than than any MBA in the world whether that's NCIAT or Harvard it's a great great summary of some of the top minds out there oh, thanks and uh, finally cryptocurrencies bullish or bearish um, this is interesting take because if you follow my Twitter feed and watch me poke fun at all my crypto friends you would assume that I would be bearish uh, I'm a longtime cheerleader for crypto, never really had much in the way of portfolio positioning. But if you go back to 2015, we used to have uh, crypto payments for the idea farm on the blog, on the website, but no one ever used it. So eventually we took it down. Maybe I have some Bitcoin stashed away somewhere that someone paid and I just don't, don't know. But, uh, you know, you had no question all of the characteristics of a mania a uh, couple, what was it last year, 2020, what was it? 2019 beginning end of 2018. Yeah. 18. Um, that having been said, there's a simple piece of advice I give my friends and I say, look, if you want to buy crypto, fine. It sort of fits this Jeff Bezos regret minimization framework in my mind. Um, 
buy it in line with the global market portfolio market cap, which is currently around, I don't know if it's 0.1% of the world or 0.01%. Either way, for most people, it's, it's not much. So if you got a million bucks, I'm fine if you put in somewhere between 1,000 to 10,000. And hey, if it 10Xs, if it 100Xs, 1,000Xs, if it goes from 20,000 to 2 million, great. You know, you'll, you're, you'll make some good money on it. If it goes to zero, that's okay too. And that's the beauty of a market cap weighted portfolio, this coffee can style, is you never sell it and it becomes a bigger piece. It becomes a, an actual thing in the future. You know, I would certainly market cap weighted or stay with the three or four biggest ones. Uh, and so I own some in about that percentage, but mostly under that framework of, of regret minimization. I certainly wouldn't be putting uh, my, my mortgage down payment and, and denominated in Bitcoin. Awesome. Well, that's been great, Meb. And it's, uh, thanks very much for giving us the time today. Thanks. Thanks so much for inviting me. My, it's perfect timing because my voice <laughs> is running out. Uh, you guys want to shoot me feedback anytime. Love to hear it over email. Happy to chat and hope to uh, see you and the rest of the listeners at some point in the real world one of these days uh, in the future. Yeah, thanks very much. And just quickly, where should people go to follow your insights? And, um, and also, uh, you've got a podcast out as well. Mebfaber.com is my blog. Uh, the podcast is The Meb Faber Show. The Watch Me Pick Fights on Twitter uh, handle is Meb Faber. And my day job is managing uh, assets at cambriainvestments.com or Cambria Funds. And the last one is the research service Idea Farm. So any of those places you can find me. Amazing. Thanks so much, Meb. It was a blast. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest to you. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new podcasts, stock reports or events from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. Until next time.